My beloved brothers and sisters, this morning I wish to speak to you of eternal truths, those truths which will enrich our lives and see us safely home. Everywhere people are in a hurry. Jet-powered aircraft speed their precious human cargo across broad continents and vast oceans so that business meetings might be attended. Obligations met, vacations enjoyed, or families visited. Roadways everywhere, including freeways, throughways, and motorways, carry millions of automobiles occupied by more millions of people in a seemingly endless stream and for a multitude of reasons as we rush about the business of the day. In this fast-paced life, do we ever pause for moments of meditation, even thoughts of endless and timeless truths? When compared to eternal verities, most of the questions and concerns of daily living are they really rather trivial? What should we have for dinner? What color should we paint the living room? Should we sign Johnny up for soccer? These questions and countless others like them lose their significance. When times of crisis arise, when loved ones are hurt or injured, when sickness enters the house of good health, when life's candle dims and darkens and darkness threatens, our thoughts become focused. And we're easily able to determine what is really important and what is merely trivial. I recently visited with a woman who had been battling life-threatening disease for over two years. She indicated that prior to her illness, her days were filled with activities such as cleaning her house to perfection and filling it with beautiful furnishings. She visited her hairdresser twice a week and spent money and time each month adding to her wardrobe. Her grandchildren were invited to visit infrequently, for she was always concerned that what she considered her precious possessions might be broken or otherwise ruined by tiny and careless hands. And then she received the shocking news that her mortal life was in jeopardy and that she might have very limited time left here. She said that at the moment she heard the doctor's diagnosis, she knew immediately that she would spend whatever time she had remaining with her family and friends and with the gospel at the center of her life. For these represented what was most precious to her. Such moments of clarity come to all of us at one time or another, although not always through so dramatic a circumstance. We see clearly what it is that really matters in our lives and how we should be living. Said the Savior, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In our times of deepest reflection, of greatest need, the soul of man reaches heavenward, seeking a divine response to life's greatest questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go after we leave this life? Answers to these questions are not discovered within the covers of academia's textbooks or by checking the Internet. These questions transcend mortality. They embrace eternity. Where did we come from? This query is inevitably thought, if not spoken, by every human being. The Apostle Paul told the Athenians on Mars Hill that we are the offspring of God. Since we know that our physical bodies are the offspring of our mortal parents, we must probe for the meaning of Paul's statement. The Lord has declared that the spirit and the body are the soul of man. Thus it is the spirit which is the offspring of God. The writer of Hebrews refers to him as the father of spirits, the spirits of all men and others, women and children, are literally his begotten sons and daughters. We note that inspired poets have for our contemplation of this subject written moving messages and recorded transcendent thoughts. William Wordsworth penned the truth. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory to become from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Parents ponder their responsibility to teach, to inspire, and to provide guidance, direction, and example. And while parents ponder, children, and particularly youth, ask the penetrating question, why are we here? Usually it is spoken silently to the soul and phrased, why am I here? How grateful we should be that a wise creator fashioned an earth and placed us here with a veil of forgetfulness of our previous existence so that we might experience a time of testing, an opportunity to prove ourselves in order to qualify for all that God has prepared for us to receive. Clearly, one primary purpose of our existence upon the earth is to obtain a body of flesh and bones. We've also been given the gift of agency. In a thousand ways, we're privileged to choose for ourselves. Here we learn from the hard taskmaster of experience. We discern between good and evil. 
We differentiate as to the bitter and the sweet. We discover that there are consequences attached to our actions. By obedience to God's commandments, we can qualify for that house spoken of by Jesus when He declared, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there ye may be also." All that we come into mortality, trailing clouds of glory. Life moves relentlessly forward. Youth follows childhood. Maturity comes ever so imperceptibly. From experience, we learn the need to reach heavenward for assistance as we make our way along life's pathway. God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord have marked the way to perfection. They beckon us to follow eternal verities and to become perfect as they are perfect. The Apostle Paul likened life to a race. To the Hebrews, he urged, let us lay aside the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In our zeal, let us not overlook the sage counsel from Ecclesiastes. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Actually, the prize belongs to him who endures to the end. When I reflect on the race of life, I remember another type of race, even from childhood days. My friends and I would take pocket knives in hand and from the soft wood of a willow tree fashion small toy boats with a triangular-shaped cotton sail in place. We launched this crude craft in the race down the relatively turbulent waters of Utah's Provo River. We would run along the river's bank and watch the tiny vessels, sometimes bobbing violently in the swift current, and at other times sailing serenely, serenely as the water deepened. During a particular race, we noted that one boat led all the rest. They were just tiny boats. Led all the rest toward the finish line. Suddenly, the current carried it too close to a large whirlpool, and the boat heaved to its side and capsized. It was carried, unable to make its way back into the main current. At last, it came to an uneasy rest amid the flotsam and jetsam that surrounded it, held fast by the tentacles of the grasping green moss. The toy boats of childhood had no keel for stability, no rudder to provide direction, and no source of power inevitably their destination was downstream, the path of least resistance. Unlike toy boats, we have been provided divine attributes to guide our journey. We enter mortality not to float with the moving currents of life, 
but with the power to think, to reason, and to achieve. Our Heavenly Father did not launch us on our eternal voyage without providing the means whereby we could receive from Him guidance to ensure our safe return. I speak of prayer. I speak, too, of the whisperings from that still, small voice. And I do not overlook the Holy Scriptures, which contain the word of the Lord and the words of the prophets provided to us to help us successfully cross the finish line. At some period in our mortal mission, there appears the faltering step, the wan smile, the pain of sickness, even the fading of summer, the approach of autumn, the chill of winter, and the experience we call death. Every thoughtful person has asked himself the question best phrased by Job of old, If a man die, shall he live again? Try as we might to put the question out of our thoughts. It always returns. Death comes to all mankind. It comes to the aged as they walk on faltering feet. It summons us heard by those who have scarcely reached midway in life's journey. At times it hushes the laughter of little children. But what of an existence beyond death? Is death the end of all? Robert Blatchford, in his book, God and My Neighbor, attacked with vigor, accepted Christian beliefs such as God, Christ, prayer, and particularly immortality. He boldly asserted that death was the end of our existence, that no one could prove otherwise. Then a surprising thing happened. His wall of skepticism suddenly crumbled to dust. He was left exposed and undefended. Slowly he began to feel his way back to the faith he had ridiculed and abandoned. What had caused this profound change in his outlook? His wife died. With a broken heart, he went to the room where lay all that was mortal of her. He looked again at the face he loved so well. Coming out, he said to a friend, It is she, and yet it is not she. Everything has changed. Something that was there before is taken away. She is not the same. What can be gone if it be not the soul? Later he wrote, Death is not what some people imagine. It is only like going into another room. In that other room, we shall find the dear women and men and the sweet children we loved and lost. Close quote. My brothers and sisters, we know that death is not the end. This truth has been taught by living prophets throughout the ages. It is also found in our holy scriptures. In the Book of Mormon, we read specific and comforting words. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, 
If it may known unto me by an angel, have the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it pass, come to pass, that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. After the Savior was crucified, his body had lain in the tomb for three days, the Spirit again entered. The stone was rolled away, and the resurrected Redeemer walked forth, clothed with an immortal body of flesh and bones. The answer to Job's question, if a man dies, shall he live again, came when Mary and the others approached the tomb and saw two men in shining garments who spoke to them. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. As the result of Christ's victory over the grave, we shall all be resurrected. This is the redemption of the soul. Paul wrote, There are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. It is the celestial glory which we seek. It is in the presence of God we desire to dwell. It is a forever family in which we want membership. Such blessings are earned through a lifetime of striving, seeking, repenting, and finally succeeding. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where do we go after this life? No longer need these universal questions remain unanswered. From the very depths of my soul, and in all humility, I testify that those things of which I have spoken are true. Our Heavenly Father rejoices for those who keep His commandments. He is concerned also for the lost child, the tardy teenager, the wayward youth, the delinquent parent. Tenderly, the Master speaks to these and indeed to all. Come back. Come up. Come in. Come home. Come unto me. In one week, we will celebrate Easter. Our thoughts will turn to the Savior's life, His death, and His resurrection. As His special witness, I testify to you that He lives and that he awaits our triumphant return, that such a return will be ours, all of us, I pray humbly in his holy name, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. During this conference and in other recent meetings, many of us have wondered, what can I do to help build up the Lord's Church and see real growth where I live? In this and every other important endeavor, our most important work is always within our own home and family. 
It is within families that the Church is established and real growth occurs. We are to teach our children the principles and doctrines of the Gospel. We need to help them have faith in Jesus Christ and prepare them for baptism when they are eight years old. We must be faithful ourselves so that they can see our example of love for the Lord and His Church. This helps our children feel joy in keeping the commandments and happiness in family and gratitude in service to others. Within our homes, we should follow the pattern given by Nephi when he said, We labor diligently to persuade our children to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. We labor diligently to bring these blessings to our children by attending church with them, holding family home evening, and reading the scriptures together. We pray daily with our family, accept callings, visit the sick and the lonely, and do other things that let our children know that we love them and that we love our Heavenly Father, His Son, and their Church. We talk and prophesy of Christ as we give a family home evening lesson, or sit with the child and tell of our love for him or her and of our testimony of the restored gospel. We can write of Christ by writing letters to those who are away, missionaries serving, sons or daughters in the military, and those we love are all blessed by letters we write. Letters from home are not just quick emails. Real letters provide something tangible that can be held, thought about, and cherished. We help our children rely on the Savior's Atonement and know the forgiveness of a loving Heavenly Father by showing love and forgiveness in our own parenting. Our love and forgiveness not only draw our children closer to us, but also build faith in knowing that their Heavenly Father loves them and that He will forgive them as they strive to repent and do better and be better. They trust this truth because they have experienced the same from their earthly parents. In addition to the work that we will do within our own family, Nephi taught that we labor diligently to persuade our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every one of us has the blessing and responsibility of sharing the gospel. Some of those who need the gospel in their lives are not yet members of the Church. Some were once among us but need to feel again the joy they felt when they embraced the gospel at an earlier time in their lives. The Lord loves both the person who has never had the gospel as well as the person who is returning to Him. To him and to us it doesn't matter. It's all one work. It's the worth of souls, whatever their condition, that is great to our Heavenly Father, His Son, and to us. The work of our Heavenly Father and His Son is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of His children, regardless of their circumstances. Our blessing is to help in this great work. President Monson explained how we can help when he said, Our missionary experiences have to be current. It's not enough to sit back and ponder former experiences. To be fulfilled, you have to continue to naturally and normally share the gospel. The work of naturally and normally sharing the gospel with those we care about and love will be the work and joy of our lives. Let me tell you about two such experiences. Dave Orchard grew up in Salt Lake City where most of his friends were members of the Church. They were a great influence on him. In addition to church leaders in his neighborhood constantly inviting him to activities, uh, his friends did the same. 
Even though he didn't join the church at that time, his growing up years were blessed by the influence of good LDS friends and church-sponsored activities. After he entered college, he moved away from his home, and most of his friends left on missions. He missed their influence in his life. One of Dave's high school friends was still home. This friend was meeting every week with his bishop in an effort to put his life in order and be able to serve as a missionary. He and Dave became roommates, and as would be both natural and normal, they talked about why he wasn't then serving as a missionary and why he was meeting frequently with the bishop. The friend expressed his gratitude and respect for his bishop and the opportunity to repent and serve. He then asked Dave whether he would like to come to the next interview. What an invitation! But in the context of their friendship and circumstances, it was both natural and normal. Dave agreed and was soon meeting with the bishop himself. This led to Dave's decision to meet with the missionaries. He received a testimony that the gospel is true and a date for his baptism was set. Dave was baptized by his bishop, and a year later, Dave Orchard and Catherine Evans were married in the temple. They have five beautiful children. Catherine is my little sister. I will be forever grateful to this good friend who, together with a good bishop, brought Dave into the church. As Dave spoke of his conversion as bore his testimony regarding these events, he asked the question, So, was it worth it? Was all the effort of friends and youth leaders and my bishop over all the years worth the effort to have just one boy be baptized? Pointing to Catherine and his five children, he said, Well, at least for my wife and our five children, the answer is yes. Whenever the gospel is shared, it is never just one boy. Whenever conversion happens or someone returns to the Lord, it is a family that is saved. As Dave and Catherine's children have grown, they have all embraced the gospel. One daughter and two sons have served as missionaries, and one just received his call to serve in the Alpine German-speaking mission. The two oldest have married in the temple, and the youngest is now in high school, faithful in every way. Was it worth it? <laughs> oh, yes, it was worth it. Sister Eileen Waite attended the same state conference where Dave Orchard told of his conversion experience. Throughout the conference, all she could think of was her own family, and particularly her sister, Michelle, who had long been away from the Church. Michelle was divorced and trying to raise four children. Eileen felt impressed to send her a copy of Elder Ballard's book, Our Search for Happiness, together with her testimony, which she did. The very next week, another friend told Eileen that she, too, had felt that she should contact Michelle. This friend also wrote Michelle a note, sharing her testimony and expressing her love. Isn't it interesting how often the Spirit works on several people to help one in need? Time passed. Michelle called Eileen and thanked her for the book. She said that she was beginning to recognize the spiritual void in her life. Eileen told her that she knew that the peace she was seeking could be found in the gospel. She told her that she loved her and wanted her to be happy. Michelle began to make changes in her life. Soon she met a wonderful man who was active in the Church. They married and a year later were sealed in the Ogden Temple. Recently, her 24-year-old son was baptized. To the others in Michelle's family and all others who do not yet know that this Church is true, 
I invite you to prayerfully consider whether the Church is true. Allow your family and friends and missionaries to help. When you know that it is true, and it is, come join with us by taking the same step in your life. The end of this story has not yet been written, but blessings have been given to this wonderful woman and her family as those who loved her acted on a prompting and in a natural and normal way shared their testimony and invited her to come back. I've thought a lot about these two experiences. One young man was working to put his own life in order, and he helped another young man who was seeking the truth. One woman shared her testimony and her faith with her sister who had been away from the Church for 20 years. If we will pray and ask Heavenly Father who we can help, and promise to act on the promptings He gives us, letting us know how we can help, He will answer our prayers, and we will become instruments in His hands to do His work. Acting in love upon the promptings given by the Spirit becomes the catalyst. As you have listened to these experiences of naturally and normally sharing the gospel with those you care about, many of you have had the same experience that Eileen Waite had. You've thought of someone to whom you should reach out and either invite them to come back or share with them your feelings about the gospel of Jesus Christ. My invitation is to act without delay on that prompting. Talk to your friend or family member. Do it in a natural and normal way. Let them know of your love for them and for the Lord. Missionaries can help. My counsel is the same that President Monson has given so many times from this very pulpit. Never delay a prompting. As you act on the prompting and do it with love, watch as our Heavenly Father uses your willingness to act to bring about a miracle in your life and in the life of the person you care about. My dear brothers and sisters, we can build up His Church and see real growth as we work to bring the blessings of the gospel to our family and to those we love. This is the work of our Heavenly Father and His Son. I know that they live and that they answer prayers. As we act on those promptings, having faith in His ability to bring about a miracle, miracles will occur and lives will change. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A month or so after we were married, my wife and I were taking a long road trip in the car. She was driving and I was trying to relax. <laughs> I say trying because the highway we were traveling had a reputation for speed traps, and my wife might have had a slight tendency toward a lead foot in those days. I said, You're going too fast. Slow down. My new bride thought to herself, Well, I've been driving for nearly 10 years, and other than my driver's education teacher, no one ever told me how to drive before. So she replied, What gives you the right to tell me how to drive? Frankly, her question caught me off guard. So doing my best to step up to my new responsibilities as a married man, I said, I don't know, because I'm your husband, and I hold the priesthood. Brethren, just a quick tip. <laughs> if you are ever in a similar situation, that is not the right response. 
And I'm happy to report it was the one and only time I ever made that mistake. The Doctrine and Covenants explains that the right to use the priesthood in the home or elsewhere is directly connected with righteousness in our lives. The powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. It goes on to say that we lose that power when we exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of others in any degree of unrighteousness. This scripture says we must lead by principles of righteousness. Such principles apply to all leaders in the Church as well as to all fathers and mothers in their homes. We lose our right to the Lord's Spirit and to whatever authority we may have from God when we exercise control over another person in an unrighteous manner. We may think such methods are for the good of the one being controlled, but any time we try to compel someone to righteousness who can and should be exercising his or her own moral agency, we are acting unrighteously. When setting firm limits for another person is in order, those limits should always be administered with loving patience and in a way that teaches eternal principles. We cannot simply force others to do the right thing. The scriptures make clear that this is not God's way. Compulsion builds resentment. It conveys mistrust. And it makes people feel incompetent. Learning opportunities are lost when controlling persons pridefully assume they have all the right answers for others. The scriptures say that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men to engage in this unrighteous dominion, so we should be aware that it is an easy trap to fall into. Women, too, may exercise unrighteous dominion, though the scriptures identify the problem especially with men. Unrighteous dominion is often accompanied by constant criticism and the withholding of approval or love. Those on the receiving end feel they can never please such leaders or parents and that they always fall short. Wise parents must weigh when children are ready to begin exercising their own agency in a particular area of their lives. But if parents hold on to all decision-making power and see it as their right, they severely limit the growth and development of their children. Our children are in our homes for a limited time. If we wait until they walk out the door to turn over to them the reins of their moral agency, we have waited too long. They will not suddenly develop the ability to make wise decisions if they have never been free to make any important decisions while in our homes. Such children often either rebel against this compulsion or are crippled by an inability to make any decisions on their own. Wise parents prepare their children to get along without them. They provide opportunities for growth as children acquire the spiritual maturity to exercise their agency properly. And yes, this means children will sometimes make mistakes and learn from them. Our family had an experience that taught us about helping children develop their ability to make choices. Our daughter Mary was a standout soccer player growing up. One year, her team made it to the championships. And wouldn't you know it, the game was to be played on a Sunday. As a young teen, Mary had had years of teaching that the Sabbath was a day of rest and spiritual regeneration, not recreation. 
but she still felt pressure from her coaches and teammates to play, as well as a desire not to let her team down. She asked us what she should do. My wife and I could easily have made this decision for her. However, we decided after prayerful consideration that in this case our daughter was ready to take spiritual responsibility for her own decision. We read some scriptures with her and encouraged Mary to pray about it and think about it. After a few days, she announced her decision. She would play the game on Sunday. Now what were we to do? After further discussion and receiving reassurance from the Spirit, we did as we had promised and permitted her to carry out her choice to play the game. After the game ended, Mary slowly walked over to her waiting mother. Oh, Mom, she said, that felt awful. I never want to feel like that again. I'm never playing another game on the Sabbath day. And she never did. Mary had now internalized the principle of Sabbath-keeping. If we had forced her not to play the game, we would have deprived her of a precious and powerful learning experience with the Spirit. As you can see, helping children exercise their agency properly requires teaching them how to pray and receive answers to their prayers. There must also be teaching about the value and purpose of obedience, as well as about all other essential principles of the gospel. In raising our family, we decided that our most important goal would be to help our children establish their own connection to heaven. We knew that ultimately they would need to depend on the Lord, not on us. Brigham Young said, Were I to draw a distinction in all the duties that are required of the children of men, I would place first and foremost the duty of seeking unto the Lord our God until we open the path of communication from heaven to earth, from God to our own souls. Mary had received answers to her prayers in other earlier situations, and so we trusted that our daughter was developing this path of communication with heaven in her life. Thus she learned something positive from her experience and was equipped to make better choices in the future. Without a link to the Spirit, children and parents alike would be able to rationalize all sorts of poor decisions in the name of exercising their agency. The promise of Scripture is that they that are wise and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide are not deceived. An additional and tragic side effect of unrighteous dominion can be a loss of trust in God's love. I have known some people who were subject to demanding and controlling leaders or parents, and they have found it hard to feel the very love from their Heavenly Father that would sustain them and motivate them along the path of righteousness. If we are going to help those in our stewardships make the all-important link with heaven, we must be the kind of parent and leader described in Doctrine and Covenants section 121. We must act only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. President Henry B. Eyring has said, Of all the help we can give young people, the greatest will be to let them feel our confidence that they are on the path home to God and that they can make it. As we consider the principles that should guide us in the Church and at home, let me close with an illustration from the biography of President Thomas S. Monson. 
Anne Dibb, the Monson's daughter, says that to this day, when she walks in the front door of the house where she was raised, her father will say, Oh, look who's here! And aren't we glad? And isn't she beautiful? She goes on to say, My parents always give me some compliment. It doesn't matter what I look like or what I've been doing. When I go and visit my parents, I know I am loved. I am complimented. I am made welcome. I am home. Brothers and sisters, this is the Lord's way. Even if you've been mistreated in the past, I know the Lord wants you to come unto Him. All are loved. All are welcomed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Like all good parents, my own parents desired a bright future for their children. My father was not a member, and because of unusual circumstances that existed at that time, my parents determined that my brothers and sisters and I should leave our island home of American Samoa in the South Pacific and travel to the United States in order to go to school. The decision to be separated from us was a difficult one for my parents, especially my mother. They knew that there would be unknown challenges as we were put into new surroundings. However, with faith and determination, they pressed forward with their plan. Because of her Latter-day Saint upbringing, my mother was familiar with the principles of fasting and prayer, and both my parents felt that they needed the blessings of heaven to help their children. In that spirit, they began to set aside a day every week to fast and pray for us. Their vision was to prepare their children for a bright future. They acted on this vision as they exercised their faith by seeking the Lord's blessings. Through fasting and prayer, they received the assurance, comfort, and peace that all would be well. How do we, amidst the challenges of our lives, gain the vision necessary to do those things that will bring us closer to the Savior? Speaking of vision, the book of Proverbs teaches this truth. Where there is no vision, the people perish. If we are to prosper rather than perish, we must gain a vision of ourselves as the Savior sees us. The Savior saw more in those humble fishermen whom He called to follow Him than they saw in, in themselves. He saw a vision of who could, they could become. He knew of their goodness and potential, and He acted to call them. They were not experienced at first, but as they followed they saw his example, felt his teachings, and became his disciples. There was a time when some of his disciples departed from him because the things they heard were hard for them. Aware that others might also depart, Jesus inquired of the twelve, Will you also go away? Peter's response reflects how he had changed and had caught the vision of who the Savior was. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, he responded. With that vision, these faithful and devoted disciples were able to do hard things as they traveled to preach the gospel and establish the Church after the Savior departed. Eventually, some of them made the ultimate sacrifice for their testimonies. There are other examples in the scriptures of those who caught the vision of the gospel, then went out to act upon that vision. The prophet Alma gained his vision when he heard Abinadi boldly teaching and testifying before King Noah. He acted on Abinadi's teachings and went about teaching the things he had learned, baptizing many who believed on his words. 
While persecuting the early saints, the Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, then acted by teaching and testifying of Christ. In our own day, many young men, women, and senior couples have answered the call of the prophet of God to serve missions. With faith and courage, they leave their homes and everything that is familiar to them because of their faith in the great good they can do as missionaries. As they act on their vision to serve, they bless the lives of many and, in the process, change their own lives. In the past General Conference, President Monson thanked us for the service we give to one another and reminded us of our responsibility to be God's hands blessing His children here on the earth. The fulfillment of this charge has been heartwarming as members of the Church have acted upon His vision. Before the Savior departed, understanding that we will need help, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. He taught his disciples, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. This is the same Holy Ghost that can empower and motivate us to do the things that the Savior and our modern-day prophets and apostles teach. As we put into action the teachings of our, Savior, of our leaders, we gain a deeper understanding of our Savior's vision for us. Throughout this conference, we have received inspired counsel from prophets and apostles. Study their teachings and ponder them in your hearts while seeking the Spirit of the Holy Ghost to help you catch a vision of these teachings in your life. With that vision, exercise your faith in acting upon their counsel. Search and study the scriptures with a mind to receiving further light and knowledge of their message to you. Ponder them in your heart and allow them to inspire you. Then act on your inspiration. As we learn as a family, we act when we fast and pray. Alma spoke of fasting and praying as a way of receiving a surety when he said, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. We, too, come to know how to handle the challenges of our lives through fasting and prayer. We experience hard things in our lives that can sometimes diminish our vision and faith to do the things we should. We become so busy that we often feel overwhelmed and unable to do any more. While each of us is different, I humbly submit that we must focus our vision on the Savior and His teachings. What did he see in Peter, James, and John and the other apostles that prompted him to act to invite them to follow him? Like them, the Savior has a great vision of who we can become. It will take the same faith and courage that the first apostles had in order for us to refocus on the things that matter most in bringing lasting happiness and great joy. When we study the life of our Savior and his teachings, we see him amongst the people, teaching praying, lifting, and healing. When we emulate Him and do the things we see Him do, we begin to see a vision of who we can become. You will be blessed with insight through the help of the Holy Ghost to do more good. Changes will begin to come, and you will bring a different order to your life that will bless you and your family. During His ministry amongst the Nephites, the Savior asked, What manner of men ought ye to be? He replied, even as I am. We need his help to become like him, and he has shown us the way. Therefore, ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. 
For he that asketh receiveth, and unto him that knocketh it shall be opened. I know that as we gain the vision of ourselves as the Savior sees us, and as we act on that vision, our lives will be blessed in unexpected ways. Because of the vision of my parents, not only was my life blessed by educational experiences, but I was placed in circumstances where I found and embraced the gospel. More important, I learned the significance of good and faithful parents. Simply put, my life was changed forever. Just as vision led my parents to fast and pray for their children's welfare, and as the early apostles' vision led them to follow the Savior, that same vision is available to inspire and help us to act. Brothers and sisters, we are a people with a history of vision and the faith and courage to do. Look at where we have come and the blessings we have received. Believe that He can bless you with vision in your life and the courage to act. I bear you my witness of the Savior and His desire for us to return to Him. To do that, we must have the faith to do, to follow Him and become like Him. Throughout various times of our lives, He holds out His hand and invites us, Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just as the Savior saw great potential in His early disciples, He also sees the same in us. Let us see ourselves as the Savior sees us. I pray we will have the vision with the faith and courage to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, according to the Scriptures, the Liahona was a round ball of curious workmanship featuring two spindles, one of which pointed the way Father Lehi's family should go into the wilderness. I think I know why Lehi was greatly astonished when he first saw it, because I remember my reaction when I first saw and witnessed a GPS unit. In my mind, it was a modern-day device of curious workmanship. Somehow, in some way, I can't even imagine this little device right here in my phone can pinpoint exactly where I am and tell me exactly to get how to get where I want to go. For both my wife Barbara and me, the GPS is a blessing. For Barbara, it means she doesn't have to tell me to stop and ask for directions. And for me, it means I can be right when I say I don't need to ask anyone. I know exactly where I am. Now, brothers and sisters, we have available to us a tool even more remarkable than the best GPS. Everyone loses their way at some point to some degree. It's through the promptings of the Holy Ghost that we can be brought safely back onto the right path. And it is the atoning sacrifice of the Savior that can return us home. Being lost can apply to whole societies as well as to individuals. Today we live in a time when much of this world has lost its way, 
particularly with regard to values and priorities within our homes. One hundred years ago, President Joseph S. Smith connected happiness directly to the family and admonished us to focus our, our efforts there. He said, There can be no genuine happiness separate and apart from the home. There is no happiness without service, and there is no service greater than that which converts the home to a divine institution and which promotes and preserves family life. The home is what needs reforming." Close quote. It is our homes and families that need reforming in this increasingly materialistic and secular world. A stunning example is the growing disregard for marriage here in the United States. Earlier this year, the New York Times reported that the share of children born to unmarried women has crossed the threshold. More than half of births to American women under 30 occurs outside of marriage. We also know that among couples in the United States who do marry, nearly half get divorced. Even those who stay married often lose their way by letting other things interfere with their family relationships. Equally worrisome is the ever-growing gap between the rich and poor, and between those who strive to preserve family values and commitments and those who have given up on doing so. Statistically, those who have less education and consequently lower incomes are less likely to marry and to go to church and much more likely to be involved in crime and to have children outside of marriage. And these trends are also troubling in much of the rest of the world. Opposite of what many had thought, prosperity and education seem to be connected to a higher likelihood of having traditional families and values. But the real question, of course, is about cause and effect. Do some sectors of our society have stronger values and families because they are more educated and prosperous? Or are they more educated and prosperous because they have values and strong families? In this worldwide church, we know that it is the latter. When people make the family and religious commitments to gospel principles, they begin to do better spiritually and often temporally as well. And of course, society at large are strengthened as families grow stronger. Commitments to family and values are the basic cause. Nearly everything else is effect. When couples marry and make commitments to each other, they greatly increase their chances of economic well-being. When children are born in wedlock and have both a mom and a dad, 
their opportunities, and their likelihood of occupational success skyrockets. And when families work and play together, neighborhoods and communities flourish, economies improve, and less government and fewer costly safety nets are required. So, the bad news is that family breakdown is, breakdown is causing a host of societal and economic ills. But the good news is that like any cause and effect, those ills can be reversed if what is causing them is changed. Inequities are resolved by living correct principles and values. Brothers and sisters, the most important cause of our lifetime is our families. If we will devote ourselves to this cause, we will improve every other aspect of our lives and will become, as a people and as a Church, an example and a beacon for all peoples of the earth. But this is not easy in a world where hearts are turning in many different directions and where the whole planet seems to be constantly moving and changing at a pace never before imagined. Nothing stays the same for very long. Styles, trends, fads, political correctness, and even perceptions of right and wrong shift and move. As the prophet Isaiah predicted, wrong is portrayed as right and right as wrong. The spiritual divide gets even wider as evil becomes ever more deceptive and subtle and pulls people toward it like a dark magnet, even as the gospel of truth and light attracts the honest in heart and the honorable of the earth who seek what is moral and good. We may be relatively small in number, but as members of this Church, we can reach across these widening gaps. We know the power of Christ-centered service that brings together God's children regardless of their spiritual or their economic status. One year ago, the First Presidency invited us to participate in a day of celebrating 75 years of the welfare program, which helps people to become more self-sufficient. Millions of hours were contributed by our members all around the world. The Church is the morning in this tempestuous sea, an anchor in the churning waters of change and, a division, and division, and a beacon to those who value and seek righteousness. The Lord uses this Church as a tool in pulling His children throughout the world toward the protection of His gospel. The spirit of Elijah, which has no boundaries, is also a great power in the Lord's purposes for the eternal destiny of His children. In Malachi's words, the Spirit of the Holy Ghost turns the heart of the fathers to the children 
and the heart of the children to their fathers. The church stands as an example of heart-turning and as a catalyst for good in the world. Among church members who are married in the temple and who regularly attend Sunday meetings, the divorce rate is significantly less than that of the world. And families remain closer and are in more frequent communication. The health in our families is better and we live several years longer than the population average. We contribute more financial resources and more service per capita to those in need, and we are more likely to seek higher education. I point out these things not to boast, but to testify that life is better and much happier as hearts turn toward family and as families live in the light of the gospel of Christ. So what can we do to become, not become lost? First, may I suggest that we prioritize, put everything you do outside the home in subjection to what happens inside your home. Remember President Lee's counsel that the most important work you will ever do with, will be within the walls of your own home. And President McKay's timeless, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. Organize your personal lives to provide time for prayer, scripture, and family activity. Give your children responsibilities in the home that will teach them how to work. Teach them that living the gospel will lead them away from filth, promiscuity, and violence of the internet, media, and video games. They will not be lost, and they will be prepared to handle responsibility when it is thrust upon them. Second, we need to do things in the right order. Marriage first, then family. Too much of the world has forgotten this natural order of things and thinks they can change it or even reverse it. Remove any of your fear with faith. Trust the power of God to guide you. To you who are not married, pay careful attention to finding your eternal companion. Young men, remember something else. The President Joseph S. Smith said, Bachelorhood carries to the superficial mind the idea that it is desirable because it brings with it a minimum of responsibility. The real fault lies with the young man. The license of the age leads them from paths of duty and responsibility. Their sisters are the victims and would marry if they could, and would accept cheerfully the responsibilities of family life. And to you young women, I would add that you must also not lose sight of this responsibility. No career can bring you as much fulfillment as rearing a family. And when you are my age, you will realize this even more. Third. 
Husbands and wives, you should be equal partners in your marriage. Read often and understand the proclamation on the family and follow it. Avoid unrighteous dominion in any form. No one owns a spouse or our children. God is the Father of us all and has extended to us the privilege of our own family, which was previously only His, to help us become more like Him. As His children, we should learn at home to love God and to know that we can ask Him for the help that we need. Anyone married or single can have a happy and, su and supportive experience within whatever family you may have. And finally, use the family resources of the Church. In raising children, families can draw upon the help of the ward, support and work in tandem with priesthood and auxiliary leaders in taking full advantage of the Church's youth and family programs. Remember another of President Lee's insightful phrases that the Church is the scaffolding with which we build eternal families. Now, if for any reason you individually or a family have lost your way, then you need only apply the Savior's teachings from Luke chapter 15 to correct your course. Here the Savior tells of the effort of a shepherd searching for his lost sheep, of a woman searching for a lost coin, and of the welcome received by a prodigal son returning home. Why did Jesus teach these parables? He wanted us to know that none of us will ever be so lost that we cannot find our way again through His Atonement and His teachings. As you seek to live the gospel and doctrine of Christ, the Holy Ghost will guide you and your family. You will have a spiritual GPS to tell you always where you are and where you are going. I bear witness that the resurrected Redeemer of mankind loves all of us, and He has promised if we will follow Him, He will lead us safely back into the presence of our Heavenly Father, of which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a very good friend who sends me a new tie to wear during the sessions I speak at at each general conference. He has excellent taste, don't you think? <laughs> My young friend has some difficult challenges. They limit him in some ways, but in other ways he's extraordinary. For example, his boldness as a missionary rivals the sons of Messiah. The simplicity of his beliefs makes his convictions incredibly firm and sturdy, steady. I believe in Scott's mind it's unimaginable that everyone isn't a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that everyone hasn't read the Book of Mormon or doesn't have a testimony of its truthfulness. Let me tell you about an event in Scott's life 
when he was making his first airplane flight alone to visit his brother. A neighbor who was seated nearby overheard Scott's conversation with the person next to him. Hello, my name is Scott. What's yours? His seatmate shared his answer. What do you do? I'm an engineer. That's nice. Where do you live? In Las Vegas. We have a temple there. Do you know where the Mormon temple is? Yes. It's a beautiful building. Are you a Mormon? No. Well, you should be. It's a great religion. <laughs> have you read the Book of Mormon? No. Well, you should. It's a great book. I agree wholeheartedly with Scott. The Book of Mormon is a great book. The words of the Prophet Joseph Smith cited in the introduction page of the Book of Mormon have always resonated with me. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. This year in our Sunday School class, we are studying the Book of Mormon. As we prepare and participate, may we be motivated to follow Scott's bold example to share our love with this special scripture with others not of our faith. A dominant theme in the Book of Mormon is expressed in the final verse of the first chapter of 1 Nephi. Nephi writes, But behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom He hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. I wish to speak to you about how the Book of Mormon, which is a tender mercy of the Lord preserved for these latter days, delivers us by teaching a pure and most correct way the doctrine of Christ. Many of the stories of the Book of Mormon are stories of deliverance. Lehi's departure in the wilderness was about his family being about deliverance from the destruction of Jerusalem. The story of the Jaredites is a story of deliverance, as is the story of the Mulekites. Alma the Younger was delivered from sin. Helam and Stripling warriors were delivered in battle. Nephi and Lehi were delivered from prison. The theme of deliverance is evident throughout the entire Book of Mormon. There are two stories in the Book of Mormon which are very similar and teach us an important lesson. The first is from the Book of Messiah, starting with the twentieth chapter. Here we learn of King Limhi living in the land of Nephi. The Lamanites had waged war against the people of Limhi. The result of the war was that the Lamanites would allow King Limhi to rule over his own people but they would be in bondage to them. It was a very uneasy peace. When, when Limhi's people had their fill of Lamanite abuses, they convinced the king to go in battle against him. Three times they were defeated. Heavy burdens were laid upon them. 
Finally, they humbled themselves and cried mightily unto the Lord that He would deliver them. Verse 15 of chapter 21 tells us of the Lord's response. And now the Lord was slow to hear their cries because of their iniquities. Nevertheless, the Lord did hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites that they began to ease their burden. Yet the Lord did not see fit to deliver them out of bondage. Soon after Alma and his small band of men from Zarahemla arrived, and Gideon, one of the leaders of Limhi's people, they worked out a plan which was successful, and they escaped from the Lamanite abuses. The Lord was slow to hear their cries. Why? Because of their iniquities. The second story has many similarities in many respects, but also different. The account is recorded in the 24th chapter of the book of Messiah. Alma and his people had settled in the land of Helam when an army of the Lamanites came into the borders of the land. They met and worked out a peaceful solution. Soon the leaders of the Lamanites began to impose their will on the people of Alma and placed heavy burdens on them to bear. In verse 13 we read, And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their affliction, saying, Lift up your hearts and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. The people of Alma were delivered from the hands of the Lamanites and safely made their way back to be united with the people of Zarahemla. What is the difference between the people of Alma and the people of King Limhi? Obviously, there are several differences. The people of Alma were peaceful and more righteous. They had already been baptized and entered into a covenant with the Lord. They humbled themselves before the Lord, even before their tribulation started. All these differences made it appropriate and fair that the Lord would deliver them quickly, in a miraculous way, from the hand which kept them in bondage. These scriptures teach us of the Lord's power of deliverance. Prophecies foretelling the life and mission of Jesus Christ promise us deliverance that He will provide. His Atonement and Resurrection provide for all of us an escape from physical death and, if we repent, an escape from spiritual death, bringing with it the blessings of eternal life. The promise of the Atonement and Resurrection the promises of deliverance from physical and spiritual death were declared by God to Moses when he said, For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In contrast to the beautifully designed beliefs for us in the Holy Scriptures, we find the opposite forces of secularism engaging in challenges in the long-standing beliefs in the Holy Writings, 
writings which have guided us through these many centuries in defining eternal values and standards for the conduct of life. They seek to declare that the teachings of the Bible are false and the teachings of the Master out of date. Their voices cry that each man must have freedom to set his own standards. They attempt to alter the rights of believers, contrary to that which is taught in the scriptures and the words of the holy prophets. What a blessing it is to have an account of the Lord's mission of our Lord and Savior declared in the Book of Mormon, to add a second witness to the doctrine declared in the Bible. Why is it important for the world to have both the Bible and the Book of Mormon? I believe the answer is found in the 13th chapter of 1 Nephi. Nephi records, And the angel spake unto me, saying, These last records which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, that is, the Book of Mormon, shall establish the truth of the first, which is the Bible, which are of the twelve apostles of the land, and make them known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make them known to all kindreds, tongues, and people, that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto Him, or they cannot be saved. Neither the Bible nor the Book of Mormon in of themselves is sufficient. Both are necessary for us to teach and learn about the complete doctrine of Christ. We need the need for the other does not diminish either one of them. Both the Bible and the Book of Mormon are necessary for our salvation and exaltation, as President Benson so powerfully taught. When used together, the Bible and the Book of Mormon confound false doctrine. I want to chew to close by noting two stories, one from the Old Testament, the other from the Book of Mormon, to show how the books work harmoniously together. The story of Abraham begins with his deliverance from the idol-worshipping Chaldeans. He and his wife, Sarah, were later delivered from their sorrow and, and promised that through their posterity all nations of the earth would be blessed. The Old Testament contains the account of Abraham taking Lot, his nephew, with him out of the land of Egypt. Given a choice of land, Lot chose the plain of Jordan, and he pitched his tent facing Sodom, a city of great wickedness. Most of the problems that Lot later encountered in his life—and there were several—can be traced back to his decision to position the door of his tent to look upon Sodom. Abraham, the father of the faithful, experienced life differently. Certainly, there were many challenges, but it was to be a blessed life. We do not know which way Abraham's tent door faced. But there is a strong hint in the last verse of the 13th chapter of Genesis. It reports that Abram, or Abraham removed his tent and came to dwell in the plains of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. While I do not know, I personally believe 
at the door of Abraham's tent face the altar he built unto the Lord. How do I draw this conclusion? It's because I know the Book of Mormon story about King Benjamin's instructions to his people when they gathered to hear his final address. King Benjamin instructed them to position the doors of their tents facing the temple. We can be delivered from the ways of evil and wickedness by turning to the teachings of the Holy Scriptures. The Savior is the great deliverer, for He delivers us from death and from sin. I declare that Jesus is the Christ, and we can draw close to Him by reading the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. The first testaments of our Savior are in the Old and New Testament, or the Bible. Again, remember my friend Scott's description of the Book of Mormon. It's a great book. I testify to you that much of the Book of Mormon's greatness stems from its harmony with the Holy Bible. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.